we have been uh, discussing uh, the various chapters in Isaiah in the theme of the return from exile. And last year we were, were looking at the chapters in Isaiah that speak of the need for exile. And Advent, like the season of Lent, which precedes Easter, is a season in which we reflect on the multitudinous sins and iniquities which we are guilty of. And yet, even in this time, God is promising to be kind and faithful to his people Israel. In this chapter, as we saw last week, the Lord, instead of giving us double judgment, which we truly deserve, gives us double mercy. And so it is in this chapter that the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking concerning his son Jesus. And that is the, that is the framework in which we're going to discuss this passage today. This is... Uh, an absolutely wonderful passage, and the reason this passage falls on this particular Sunday is this Sunday, in the midst of Advent, is a Sunday of joyfulness and celebration. Hopefully you were able to see a little bit of that in the songs we talked about. Uh, in, in many of the songs, we talked about God's miraculous deeds that he did through Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. And this passage prophesies that beforehand. And so we're going to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises here, as well as the church beginning to enter into being part of that fulfillment as well. So we're going to look at four elements of this passage today. The Trinitarian commission that Jesus Christ has, that is uh, what he explains in this first verse, what it tells us about the heart of God, the nature of God, that all persons in the Godhead are involved in this commissioning of the, of the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to look at how that informs uh, the rest of the, the content and theme of this, of this uh, chapter. God is, at, God is in the business of demonstrating his love by overcoming obstacles that his people cannot overcome. As we've been talking about this theme of exile, they are trapped in another land that has militarily captured them. They are not allowed to leave, just as they weren't able to get out of Egypt's oppression without the Lord uh, sending Moses and Aaron to rot the plagues on, on that nation. Likewise, God here is not just doing a military uh, campaign against Babylon, but also he is speaking uh, ahead of time about the campaign that Jesus will do as he goes through the land and heals. And we're going to look at, at all of that uh, in the restoration from exile. Uh, after that, we're going to look at how the church begins to enter into the mission of Jesus Christ. After his ascension, Jesus Christ prepares his disciples and the other followers to wait until the Holy Spirit is sent. And then from there, the church begins to enter into the very same mission that Jesus had. And then also beyond the church, we're going to look at all of Christian history as it has occurred since Christ has, has uh left since he's ascended to heaven up till now, not specifically talking about any one century or any one historical time period, but rather looking at it in the big picture. Uh, these inform us in such a way as we can see God, not just as a personally uh, precious God who saves us, who redeems us from our iniquity, who saves us, who heals us, but also that we can see God as covenantally faithful to his promises. We can trust God. And that has everything to do with your ability to trust the apostles' message that it is by grace through Jesus Christ that you are saved. If you see 
God the Father uh, working with Israel over generations, making promises to the patriarchs, to the prophets, to the kings, and then he fulfills them and is covenantally faithful and sends his son as the ultimate expression of that uh, covenantal faithfulness, then we can rightly trust God does not lie, but rather he keeps his promises. That is why we do uh, the work of of. Uh, understanding these passages in the light of Jesus Christ. So let's get into this uh, chapter today. Uh, In preparing for Advent, we see both our need and God's good, and we've already looked the last few weeks at our need. So today we're beginning to look at God's good. This chapter over and over again, it it almost as if uh, Isaiah is writing in the manner of God passing over former sins, as is talked about in the book of Acts. And so in in his water baptism uh, uh, at the hands of John the Baptist, Jesus is anointed with the dove of the Holy Spirit. If you're familiar with the gospels, this is a a story that is represented in, I think, three of the four gospels. And it it is... um, it is a miraculous account, and Jesus here is, is receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, and it says that John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit coming down, and the dove remained. Now, that is very important to understand in the light of the Old Testament. Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit at one point, a, a, an Old Covenant precursor filling. But what does he do? It says that he rebels against the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was taken away from him. This informs David's prayer, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and what? Take not your spirit from me. And so here, Jesus is the true king of Israel who has the dove come down, the Holy Spirit comes down and remains on him. The Spirit drives Jesus after this into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus, the true Israel, the true Jacob, succeeds in his time in the wilderness of 40 days, whereas Israel plainly failed in her time uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Jesus comes up from the wilderness and he comes up in the power of God and exactly like like Israel entering into the land to execute a military campaign against the nations, Jesus comes and does a spiritual military campaign against the work of Satan, sin, and sickness. And so Jesus is succeeding up out of the wilderness with the Holy Spirit by God's power in faith, and he comes and conquers. And Jesus, at the onset of his ministry, understands plainly what his mission is. That's why He comes into the synagogue on on a particular Sabbath, and he reads from Isaiah the the exact same passage that we're uh, reading today, and he says, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Now, notice, again, this is a way that we understand God often inaugurates or celebrates victory at the onset of the beginning of the thing. As we move towards Christmas, it is important to understand that because we see people like Mary or Zechariah or uh, Simeon who, who say that today God has been faithful when they're just hearing about the birth of Jesus Christ and that in the birth of Jesus Christ, God has already defeated Satan. How can that be? Because God sees the end from the beginning, and by his Holy Spirit, he reveals these things to prophets so that they would understand when God begins to do something, he will surely, surely complete it. So Jesus comes into the synagogue and begins to read in Isaiah 61. Uh, the, the chapter breaks weren't there at the time. It, um, we don't need to get into that history, but he he. He goes to the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
Now, good news to the poor is the, is the uh, summary statement of all the specific ways that good news to the poor is coming. And so Jesus is saying that the spirit of God is upon me. The dove of God has come down in the baptism and remained upon Jesus because of what? Because of the Lord. Now, the Lord is not speaking of the spirit himself, but speaking of the father. The Holy Spirit resides upon Jesus because God the Father has designated him for a specific ministry of redemption. The Holy Spirit is not given to you primarily to cause goosebumps or warm feelings, although those are helpful from time to time. The Holy Spirit is on you so that you would destroy the works of the devil that you encounter in the midst of your life. Both uh, those who you're ministering to, those who you are declaring the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ over, as well as the particular... uh, trials, tribulations that you encounter. Now, this does not mean that you are going to go without any sort of trials or any sort of things which you're not able to overcome, but the Holy Spirit is coming so that people would see the Lordship of Jesus Christ as attested to or witnessed by the demonstration of power. This is what Jesus's earthly ministry is all about in bringing the people out of their spiritual exile. Remember, at this time, Israel has already returned from Babylon. She's no longer in exile. She's in the land. But there is, so to speak, a true exile that's going uh, on. Israel is occupied by the Romans. She has a king named Herod who is not a true Jew. He's, he's rather uh, uh, a mix uh, he, he would be considered to be not truly of the line of David. It's kind of a, a, he got in by the back door, so to speak. They don't have a true king. They are in, oppressed by a, a nation that's invaded them. And beyond that, they face extreme spiritual exile in that they have gone away from the true intention of Yahweh's word, Yahweh's law, and they've begun to attempt to do the works of the law to perform righteousness in and of themselves. And so God is coming. He's sending Jesus Christ to come and show them that they not only cannot keep the law, but that they need him in their presence and in their midst. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. We're going to look really briefly at how Jesus Christ specifically fulfilled each one of these uh, phrases in this first verse of Isaiah 61. Though God has given spiritual blessing to Israel, Israel's lived more like Esau than Jacob. And because of that, uh, she has sold her birthright for porridge. Do you know what porridge is? Have you ever eaten porridge? You probably have. It, it, in America, we call it oatmeal. And, and when you think of the magnitude of this exchange that Esau made, uh, it, it is mind-blowing. Esau had all the right of being the covenant head, and yet he was tricked by Jacob, rightfully, rightfully so I can contend, that, that, he was, uh, that he had all the covenant rights and blessings, and he gives away um, you know, money, uh, flocks, the, the covenant blessings that would continue on, uh, the lineage and his heritage as, as being a, a son or a patriarch through whom God was working, and he gives that away for a bowl of oatmeal. Now, a bowl of oatmeal costs probably about 25 cents if you make it at home. If you use milk, we're talking 35, 40 cents. It's not a lot of money. And to see this, uh, this is an analogy by which we see Isra- what Israel has done. 
God wished that they would be his kingdom of priests in the land, and they trade that special privilege of being a priest on the earth, not only among themselves, but also to all the other nations, for the porridge of law-keeping, for the porridge of living in their own self-righteousness. And this is what God has to come and deliver them from. Christ is sent to proclaim good news to those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their lack and respond to his free grace, as we hear in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy, but rather I came for the sick. And he's not just speaking about physically sick. He's, he's talking about a spiritual condition. Those who recognize their destitution, their, their poverty, without the grace of God, those are the ones whom Jesus is drawing to himself. And so when Isaiah says that he's going to proclaim good news to the poor, this isn't just, although it includes, it's not just a message of social justice or economic justice or giving things to the poor. I believe the gospel includes mercy missions like that, but primarily these are understood as a means of explaining Jesus's ministry in that time and in that day. He's been sent to bind up those who have their hearts broken, not just by their sense of sin, but those who have their hearts broken by the cutting of the sword of the spirit. Those who in, in the book of Acts are cut to the quick. When they hear the word of God, the, the prophecy of judgment that's coming on those who are unrighteous, they repent because God demonstrates through the cutting of their heart by the word of God, metaphorically speaking, what is inside their heart. And Jesus comes to bind up these brokenhearted, not the brokenhearted who are suffering under the weight of their own sin, who wish to do nothing about their, their plight, but rather those who wish to have hearts made whole in the presence of their God. Jesus Christ is born under the law, and therefore he comes to proclaim liberty to those who were the captives under sin and the law and brings them into freedom. This is how we know what Paul is describing in Galatians 3 and 4, that the law, he said, which he says in the book of Romans, is holy, righteous, and good. The law itself and doing the, the law cannot produce righteousness. That does not mean that the law was wrong or the, the law was bad, as if the law was an invention of Moses rather than the uh, direction of a holy God for his, his people in the earth. And this is what Christ comes to uh, break us out of. In the book of Galatians, we, we talked about this uh, a few times before, the law and sin are seen as a sort of glass ceiling under which the nation of Israel was placed for the express reason of demonstrating to them their need for someone to come and cleanse their hearts not just to make them ceremonially clean. And so Jesus, to rightly fulfill the law, has to be born, as Paul says, under the law, through which Jesus Christ fulfilling the law, doing the law completely, uh, rightly doing everything that he sees his father doing, breaks that glass ceiling in such a way that those who were trapped under the law can now come out to freedom. This is what he means. We're not going into the jail and and opening up the doors for all people who are rapists and murderers. That's not what Isaiah is saying. He, he's plainly speaking about a metaphorical proclamation of, uh, of freedom. Of course, I believe we should visit those who are in prison, but, but we don't let them out. Uh, this, that's not what Isaiah is saying. And it, unless you understand the, the uh, symbolic framework of which this speaks of Christ, it's easy to not see. He also proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, and that is the jubilee, which if you are familiar with the Old Testament means everyone's going back to what? Their land. 
they, Jesus Christ is here proclaiming the law or the year of the Lord. And in that, in the year of the Lord, they return to the land, which was their original heritage. Christ speaks of those uh, who are restored in that they themselves are going to begin to take on this particular ministry. He describes what those who are restored will be doing in the land. In verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They is a relative pronoun, speaking of those who are restored. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. What is this speaking about? The gospel coming forth at the time of Christ will restore the true worship of God on the earth after many, many generations of unfaithfulness on Israel's behalf. God does not... uh, live in your life. He doesn't operate in your life as a hammer, right? God is not waiting for that time in which you will screw up one day. You'll commit some sort of sin. You'll be enticed by your desires. You'll give in in the weakness of flesh rather than struggling by the spirit and overcoming. You will give in to that particular sin and then bam comes the hammer. God is not like a linebacker waiting to pin you down. God is a gracious and merciful God, and before he sends his people into Israel, uh, exile, he gives them multiple generations of unfaithfulness. If you want to understand how that's so clear, read the book of Second Kings and see all of the junk that God puts up with on the behalf of the kings. It's horrible. The kings lead their nations away, uh, their, their uh, tribes, both Israel and Judah, when the, after the kingdoms are split— they all lead them away from the true worship of Yahweh. There's like one in 20 that restore things. We're talking about uh, um, Asa and and maybe uh, Jeroboam and I think Jehoiakim. Like there's like three guys out of like 30 kings who are horrible, pe- uh, who, are, who are good people. All the rest of them, they set up uh, Baal, Baal worship. They set up worship to fertility gods. They they establish temple prostitution. It's a horrible idolatry. It's it's a complete mess. And that's why God speaks so strongly about this language of Israel being unfaithful to her husband. That is himself. That is Israel was supposed to be faithful to Yahweh, and she wasn't. Therefore, God sent them into generations. So when Isaiah is speaking of the devastations of many generations, he's saying this is not just a light thing. This is not a crack in the drywall. This is erosion of the foundation, mold in the walls. It all needs torn down and rebuilt. This is an amazing prophecy that Jesus Christ will restore a group of people, and those people will begin to be the ones who restore the ancient foundations. Of course, Christ is the cornerstone, and on that cornerstone we build, but it is to us, along with all the rest of those who God has redeemed through Jesus Christ, that is the church, who are in the business of restoring the ancient ruins. Christians are restored in order that they might restore others. This is what Paul talks about when he's talking to the Ephesian church. He's saying that God saved you through faith, and this faith was a grace that didn't come from you, but rather it was a gift of God. In verse 10 of Ephesians 2, he says, for you were saved 
uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, God has an assignment for you in which you are to, by faith in Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit, restore those around you who are brokenhearted, who are like the city here that has lost its foundations, devastations of many generations, families who have never known Christianity or have been a long time coming since they once knew the Lord. And so this is the restorative work that we're to be about. Israel is going to be restored and made to prosper. And this, we see these things happen. Of course, we understand that there's a twofold fulfillment. God does bring Israel back from Babylon and and there's uh, restoration. There's a time of rebuilding. You see that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, But also it has a second spiritual fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. And so, God's promises extend in scope beyond the nation of Israel. This is prophesied, if, if you wish to see it, it's in Deuteronomy, the last 10 chapters of that book, over and over again, nations that you don't know, people that you don't know. It was prophesied before the beginning that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through Abraham's seed, and also that the, the promises of God would extend beyond Israel's boundaries. They would be to touch every nation. And so we rightly understand these things to be speaking also of the church. In verse 5, Isaiah prophesies, uh, this is in the, the voice of the Lord is declaring these things, the voice of Jesus Christ. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall uh, be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Strangers, of course, speaks of the incorporation of the Gentiles into the life of this new community. These are people who are strangers and aliens, as Paul says, to the covenants of promise. And Isaiah here is speaking beforehand about this radical redefinition of what it means to be in God's covenant. In God's covenant in the Old Testament, every male uh, of every household had to be circumcised. And in this circumcision, it was an outward visible sign by which people were understood to be a part of Israel, a part of the covenant, able to join in the assembly and able to live in the camps. Those who were not circumcised were not part of the covenant. They were strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise. And the only way to get into the covenant was to be either uh, circumcised, to be a convert, to travel to Israel, uh, to leave whatever nation you lived in and, and come, or also to worship Yahweh uh, in your own nation, but but still longing in your heart. We've, we've seen that a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, Naaman and Naaman's leprosy. He, he makes a, a request and says, please pardon me when I have to be with my king when, when the king worships. Uh, and so there's a very limited scope of God's covenant. It's national identity. It is those who worship in, in their hearts, who are, who are shown to be true Jews, but it's not open. It's not, it's not a co- covenant in which uh, just anybody in the world can come into. And so uh, when we see God prophesying about strangers and aliens who are are those who are shepherding the flocks of Israel and plowing their fields and being vine dressers of their vineyards, this is a radical idea. Not only are strangers and aliens to the covenant of promise coming in, but they are also those who would be in spiritual leadership over the people. Of course, 
Uh, Israel is a nation of shepherds. We see that in the book of Exodus. When, when Israel goes down to Egypt, they are, they are shepherds, and Egyptians hate shepherds, and so there's trouble brewing. And, and at that point, we see Israel is always identified with her, her shepherds. When God wishes through the angels to declare Jesus Christ has been born, he sends a, a team of angels to witness to who? Shepherds who are watching over their flocks as a sign that the true spiritual shepherd has been born to, uh, to Israel. And so these shepherds, these plowmen, these vine dressers are speaking of the Gentiles coming in and not just being uh, second class covenant members, but truly there will be only one body after uh, Jesus Christ has done his work. The whole community together are supposed to be a nation of priests. It says that you shall be called the priests of the Lord. We know this is the, the right interpretation because of what Peter says, that we are to be a holy nation of priests. We are in the church, the true, the true spiritual Israel, along with many, nation, uh, many people in the nation of Israel having joined the church, uh, this is the true work that God is doing on the earth through which he is beginning to uh, touch every nation. And so in this, God is calling us priests and ministers of, our, of, of the God or, or of our God. And, and at that point, uh, he describes the Gentiles as being shepherds, vine dressers, and plowmen. Uh, this is this is plainly speaking of evangelists and shepherds. Evangelists being the the understanding of the identity of those who break up the fallow ground, right? What is the what is the commandment through the prophets to Israel? Break up your fallow ground, right? Rend your heart, not your garment. He's speaking metaphorically. He's not saying go out and till your field. He's saying repent before Yahweh, forsake the idols that you've made, and return to your God. And so these people, these these Gentiles, are not just included. They are included in the leadership. This is a remarkable prophecy because it it goes beyond what Israel has the capacity to understand. She doesn't understand the fulfillment of these things, and and actually. Uh, it's it's a glorious mystery which was hidden until the time of Christ and the writings of the apostles. Verse seventeen, uh, sorry, verse seven. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Remember last week when we talked about uh, the Lord not giving. Uh, judgment or double judgment for their sins, but rather double mercy, the exact same metaphor is used here that the people in, in this new covenant community, God will give to them a double portion of land. This means necessarily that every that the boundaries of Israel are going to go away. In Israel, when, when the people went into the promised land, each tribe was given a particular location on on. The, the ground. Uh, you know, there were boundaries and those boundaries were not able to be moved. And in the year of Jubilee, if you had sold a field, that, that field comes back to you. Now that doesn't count with houses or cities, but it, it at least counts with, with fields. And so in the Jubilee, every piece of land is restored to the, the particular family and the tribe that it belonged in. How would they receive a double portion of land if the national boundaries of Israel were to be understood as the boundaries of the land? it would make no sense. You would have multiple people trying to plow the same field or build a city on top of a vineyard. It wouldn't work, 
Plainly, to receive a double portion of the land means that the boundaries of God's covenant are expanding. They are being uh, dropped. And this is what we understand to be uh, the book of Acts, in which we see that the, the book of Acts as the promise fulfillment that the law would go forth from Jerusalem, and also Jesus's commandment in Acts 1.8, that you will go from Jerusalem, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, all of the land, and then to the utmost parts of the earth. The, the land is expanding in scope. So God is in this work of demonstrating his goodness and his faithfulness while Israel was completely evil and wicked. And in this place, God is saying, not only am I going to keep my side of the covenant when you've broken yours, I'm going to make it expand. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed and touched. God's going to fulfill his promises and moreover will cause her to walk in his ways, ending their time in exile forever. We will not go back to the pattern of Israel being in Egypt. She is now delivered. Then she goes into the wilderness and fails, yet God has mercy, and then sends her into the land. And then she sins and brings her out of the land. And then he, she sends, uh, he sends her back in. That pattern is now over. God declares an end to that over and over again, generation after generation turning away because the new covenant is a greater covenant. The joy which God brings through the gospel is an everlasting joy which the sorrows of life cannot overcome and the sins and idolatries which may have small claim to you now cannot lay claim to you forever. This is the commandment of God that they would be those who have a new spirit within them. And we understand that to be God himself, the Holy Spirit. And so understanding these things about the church, we then can speak of church history, or that is all of, all of history after this time period of Jesus on the earth. Um, he, he begins to talk about these things as future nations or, or distant, uh, distant away from those who are strangers and those who were Israel. He, he describes uh, offspring uh, of these people, and these, he specifically says what will happen to these offspring. Verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. Whereas the oracles to Israel prophesied over and over again that they would soon turn away from Yahweh and go to serve other gods. Here, God gives them a, an amazing promise that their offspring would actually be known for being righteous offspring. If you read Deuteronomy, which I, I submit is one of the more important books in the Bible and the most one of the most neglected books, uh, after giving the law, God comes to Yah uh, sorry God comes to Moses and he says, "Know for certain that these people will turn away." Right after you know, right after the law is given, the very next sentence out of Yahweh's mouth is, "Everyone's going to leave me." Uh, you know, it's, it's not an encouraging, if you understand Moses's heart at the time, he was a very old man to begin with. He takes them through the wilderness. He defeats, uh, you know, Pharaoh by rotting the plagues along with Aaron. Uh, this is an amazing ministry. He goes up to Mount Sinai, sees God in the cloud, in the fire. He and the rest of the elders of Israel eat with Yahweh on top of the mountain. And then Yahweh gives him his law coming down from the mountain. Moses sees the people. And before he can even say, thou shalt not have a, any other gods before me, they've already done it. And after that, even, you know, he breaks this, the tablets, God, you know, writes them again. 
speaking of the fact that we can't keep the law in our own strength, God then uh, tells Moses right after the closing of of the commandments, he then says, know for certain that this people will go away. They'll be led to a nation that they don't know, and they'll be captives and strangers in another land. That's a terrible thing to happen. Uh, But it's immediately following That is, the oracles of God which came, or the prophecies of God which came to Moses, plainly spoke of extreme idolatry and quick turning away in one generation. And yet here, through the prophet Isaiah, God is prophesying about the new covenant, saying in verse 9 that their offspring will be known among the nations, their descendants will be known in the midst of the people, and all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. Not an offspring which the Lord is angry about and is soon quick to judge, but rather an offspring which the Lord will bless. This is an amazing prophecy. And to understand that as the point of Christmas, that Jesus Christ comes to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood, opening up the doors to, to a understanding of the mystery which was always hidden, that is, faith is the way that you enter into the covenant, not the working of the law, not the cutting of your flesh, but rather the cutting of your heart. That is what makes Christmas precious. And that's why we celebrate Advent. Whereas the oracles to Israel prophesize future generations turning away, the future generations of this, of this new people are a faithful offspring. Through, though most of this prophecy has been in the voice of Christ so far, it's been Isaiah speaking by faith, the words that Christ would utter. Uh, and this, these last few verses in uh, verse 10 and 11 are the voice of the church. And you can, you can see that plainly because... Uh, in the, the first initial verses, uh, Isaiah speaking by faith through the Spirit of God is speaking of Christ, and, and Christ describes what will happen to them in, in their redemption. But in verses 10 and 11, it talks about the Lord giving salvation to me. And so we understand that the subject of those sentences has changed. Uh, it's subtle, but if you look closely, you'll see it. Uh, Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a, uh, sorry, oh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, This is, this is a mighty prophecy that the Lord has given, and here the church begins to take a voice in, uh, in the unfolding of this prophecy. Uh, this opening verse in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, is exactly uh, reiterated or repeated in the Magnificat, which is Mary's uh, proclamation. It's her song upon the hearing from the angel Gabriel, uh, as well as uh, Elizabeth giving the word that that she had received to Mary. Mary, in hearing that the Lord has told Elizabeth that her son would be a prophet, that is John the Baptist, Mary then responds in faith and she says, I magnify the Lord in my soul. I will rejoice in God my salvation. That is an exact re- repetition of the, this verse 10. And through the gospel, God has removed the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness, and he has clothed the people in garments of praise, garments of salvation. This is 
we rightly understand the message of the church. It's the church speaking. God does not need to lay on Christ the robes of salvation because Christ is a high priest. He's already adorned in robes. He's already, he already has salvation on him. He's the one who brings salvation. And so we understand when, when it says that the Lord has clothed me with salvation, it's plainly speaking about the people of God. And we also know that because we see this bridal language. Whenever the bridal language is employed, that is the bridegroom and the bride, it's usually speaking of the, of Christ and the bride. And it says that uh, it says that the Lord has done a great work in the church, which she did not prepare uh, on her own. In Revelation nineteen six through eight, which I don't believe is about the end of the age, I believe it's something. Uh, about concerning the church uh, in this time, it says that the church is like a bride who has made herself ready. Now, how do you make yourself ready as a bride and also understand it to be uh, the Lord clothing you? How, how do you adorn yourself as a bride and also have it be understood that the Lord is the one who's adorning you? It's rightly understood in that what we looked at in Philippians 2 about four weeks ago, that we would tremble and fear before the presence of the Lord, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is the Lord who works in us, both to cause us to want to do God's will and also the energy, the spiritual energy to do it. And so when we see the bride in Revelation 19, who has been clothed in white, which John the Revelator says are the righteous deeds of the saints, we know plainly that we simply come alongside God. We do not cause that righteousness ourselves. Our self-righteousness, as Isaiah has said elsewhere, is like filthy rags. And so God himself has adorned us with the garments of salvation. And that's the cause for celebration. That's the reason why this voice here as the church is celebrating in God because God's done something for her which she could not do herself. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise. Again, this, this person who's speaking is not using the words, my righteousness will cause or my power will cause. It's saying God himself will cause. Uh, God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is describing the scope and power and, and uh, magnitude of God's, salv uh, God's uh, salvific work, his saving work in the nation of Israel at the time through Jesus Christ to extend and include a people who were strangers and aliens to the covenant to bring all of them together into such a place as they would be considered to be a garden instead of being a wilderness, that they would be in a land that's larger than the land that they were in exile from is a mighty prophecy. And to understand that, you have to understand covenant history. That's why I say, uh, read, read your Bibles and read your Bibles well, because it takes, it takes a mind which is soaking in the word to be ready to see these and have them be the cause for true spiritual worship. We are not, as Christians, students of the word to mainly see interesting things academically and earn some sort of theological credentials apart from the worship of God. That is not the goal of doing uh, deep biblical exegetical work. That is taking apart the words, understanding, wrestling with them, asking God to help you understand what it means, what, what it means to be the disciple of, of Christ, to see him command 
uh, you to, to go into all the nations and to preach the good news, you have to know why it's good news to the nations. It's good news to the nations because before God brought them into the true spiritual Israel, they had no access to the covenant. And understanding that causes you to behold Christmas in a, in a fresh way. You, you hear that God's doing this, and then you see that in this little town of Bethlehem, God is sending a baby. That's like the worst strategy ever. <laughs> I, I, I'm involved in business and and preparing my house and, you know, discipling people. And, and God's plan to me in the flesh looks like foolishness. You're going to send a baby. Like, like that would be like asking Israel, uh, uh, the Dickerson's kid child is named Israel, not the nation of Israel. Israel, come over to my house and uh, we're going to drywall the basement and we're going to put up studs. It makes no sense to send a child to open up a covenant, to radically redefine spiritual worship in a nation, which God had given a a good law to, and they had perverted it into their own thing. And and not only that, also convince nations who are deep in sin, looking after their own glory, to now come, forsake their glory, and actually take your gold and bring it to the Lord, that, that righteousness and praise would come from those nations, and they would give tribute to Christ the King. That is a ridiculous plan to send a baby. And yet, that is what the mystery of Christmas is all about. Seeing that God has these mighty, uh, universe power-wielding plans, and yet chooses to do it through his son, Jesus Christ, who is incarnated as one of us, like a child, is a miraculous thing indeed. I always... I kind of, I have a love-hate relationship with um, that song from the 90s. Does anybody know who that, was it Alanis Morissette? What if God was one of us? What a terrible song. And yet, at the same time, God did become one of us. That's what we're celebrating. That's the audacity of Christianity. No other religion believes that God himself was incarnate, not only uh, preexistent eternally as God the Son, but also was incarnate and also lived a life of shame and suffering. All other religions that talk about an incarnate uh, divine person always uh, either talk about it in terms of tragedy or great success and glory. And yet, in this, God is saying that the tragedy of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, which purchased for you uh, atonement from sins, the washing from the the, uh, dead works, and also new life, by his Holy Spirit coming and residing in you, that tragedy is also a great glorious story. It has a good and glorious ending. So that is why we do the deep work of Advent, of soul searching, of examining our hearts. Lord, where am I in this story? Am I like the the nation of Israel currently held captive by sins which easily entangle? Or am I more like a nation who needs its walls rebuilt? Maybe I'm back in the land, but I need a spiritual work of of your grace to come and build up walls, to, to establish cities once again. This not only speaks of the church, but it also speaks of every individual believer. And so God himself is coming to do this work. And also after having done that work, he's going to bring you into it. God's aim in the sending of his son is that through his people, he would work in all of the earth to cause righteousness in all places. And that's what we celebrate in Christmas. Let's pray. And then we're going to do the Advent lighting. Uh, If someone wants to go grab the kids, thanks. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would cause us 
as Psalm 119 says, to behold beautiful things from your law. Lord, we, we know that the entry of your word into our lives causes life. It causes a good thing. Give to us, God, a desire to read your word, a desire to turn away from worthless pleasures or even permissibly okay things until we see and take hold of the greater good of your scriptures. We do ask, Lord, that we would, with fullness of faith, uh, come to anticipate Christmas, that it would be sweet, that it would move our hearts, Lord. We don't, we don't wish to just be uh, learning things with our mind, but Lord, we also wish to learn things with our heart. We pray, God, that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and supplication, that we, we would ask you to do this work. We, we realize, Lord, that we cannot uh, prune our own hearts. We cannot cut our own hearts before you. Your word needs to do it. Lord, we ask you that we, you would give to us hearts of flesh and that you would remove from us hearts of stone, that you would place your spirit within us, that we would eagerly desire the things of God through Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.